and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini, and in this episode, we're going to explore spiritual needs for special needs children. Religion is an important source of both comfort and purpose for many people, including parents of special needs children. However, for many children with special needs, the effort to attend worship services can be a challenge. From noise and crowd issues to issues of not being understood or accepted, many special needs children find worship services frustrating or stressful. Not to mention that there are some religious traditions that are very archaic in their beliefs when it comes to accepting those with special needs. As parents, how do we make the practice of worship an acceptable experience for our children? And how do we reconcile the desire for spiritual fulfillment with a religious belief that might conflict with how we want our children to be accepted? Our guest in this episode can help provide some answers and advice. The Reverend Matthew Cockrum is an ordained minister in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, most recently served as a hospital chaplain at the University of Michigan Hospitals, and as an associate minister at Fountain Street Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We spoke about a number of the issues that could come up for special needs children with various situations involving attending places of worship and how to help them gain the benefits of spiritual instruction that parents desire. But first I asked Reverend Matthew about the various religious traditions and how they can help parents deal with the frustrations and sometimes the grief that can come from having special needs children and finding peace and fulfillment of purpose rather than sadness or despair. Well, I think um, in my experience in interacting with folks from various religious traditions as a, as a chaplain in the hospital and also in, in an independent religious con- congregation or in, independent religious congregations is that um, every tradition has something within it that can either pull you more towards a sense of peace and comfort or that can um, push you towards a sense of guilt and despair. Mm. Um, and and it's I think as, as humans, we have a tendency to, to try to, gra- to gravitate towards either one or the other, as opposed to recognizing that our experience and our traditions have both within them. So, um, you know, for example, there are some very conservative theistic traditions that will say, well, this happened to you because of something you've done. You know, God willed this and you deserved it. And so a lot of, a lot of parents can get stuck there, you know, and those same traditions can also have within them, you know, God is your source of strength, God is your refuge, God is um, your ultimate comforter and guide, God is the source, and I know that we're going to get to this eventually later, um, about, you know, God is a source of healing. Um, and so that same tradition can also pull you into a sense of, um, of saying, you know, it doesn't matter what, whether it's my fault or whether there's anything I could have done to present this, to prevent this, um, or whether there's anything to be done at all, regardless, God is here, God is present, or, or there's a source of strength or comfort or hope that's available to me. So helping folks kind of navigate that and recognize that the despair and sadness and feeling overwhelmed are a natural part of the process, and also helping them to trust that there will come a day um, when they will have greater hope, when they will have a greater sense of of optimism and um, a, a broader sense of where this fits into their lives that doesn't completely define them. Right. So it's kind of a dual nature there. I would say so. Yeah, that's been my experience. And there are, you know, there are some traditions, uh, the non pieces of, of, of Eastern traditions and more non-dualistic aspects of Western traditions that I think are also able to just say, well, it just is. You know, that depending on the culture you've been raised in, um, you may just approach life and life circumstances from a place of 
less struggle because there's a greater sense of acceptance that there's order in the universe and that things just happen. They may seem random, but there's nothing you can do and you don't need to stress out about it. It's going to be fine. You know? So I think part of it also depends on where you've, where you've grown up, um, both geographically, but also what the philosophy or the cultural mindset is uh, that shapes how you, how you see the world. And it's probably okay that people can come to different conclusions to help themselves based on more of what works for them sometimes as opposed to what uh, strict teaching might uh, say as far as a religion goes? Well, I would, I would be one to say yes to that, um, and, and I know that people will be in different places. I think what I've seen is that um, it can be most challenging when folks get stuck in... in uh, kind of a perennial state of grieving of what has happened to them. And that grief can have the form of, of the, the guilt, the shame, the anger, which isn't to say that it's not natural to have that on and off throughout our lives, especially when we have challenging circumstances, um, like being a parent of a child with special needs. Um, that's that's going to be a, a, a lifelong joy as well as a lifelong challenge. And, um, but I think it's when you get stuck there and you never come out and, and religion can be a part of either getting you stuck or getting you out. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so special needs children can also have lots of stress, too. Our son Nathan, for example, was having some issues last year. And when when you were part of our church, you were telling him about using a worry box. And he really liked that idea and says that he still uses it once in a while. Uh, could you tell us more about, you know, the worry box concept and some other stress reducing or stress coping techniques that can work for children? Sure. I mean, that, that was a delightful movement of spirit, I'll say, um, to have that conversation with your son. It wasn't something that I had learned, you know, like, oh, okay, so you do this thing, this worry box. It was just came in, a, in kind of an inspired conversation. And sometimes that can be the best uh, type of all. Right. So that points, I think, to the importance as people with a, with a sense of spirit, as people who have a yearning to be open to inspiration and open to being creative, that points to the importance of having some regular disciplines in our lives, you know, whoever we are, of things that help us stay calm, stay grounded, and stay paying attention to what's here right now in front of us, whether we see that as a manifestation of the divine or whether we see that as just the ultimate, you know, here is, here is all there is and that's all that matters. So in that circumstance, um, you know, we were just, just chatting and it just seemed, I think probably I thought about worry dolls. You know, there are um, some various traditions or worry stones that where people have created objects in which they can invest their energy that is causing them problems. You know, and this people do altars um, and uh, you know set them up at home or you can make a little altar box out of like um, an Altoid tin or a cigarillo tin or something and decorate it with things that are senses that will bring you a sense of hope or peace or comfort. So I think the worry box was another another iteration of that perhaps and just part of what what that draws upon and what it helps anybody but it hopefully it helps your son and helps others draw upon is finding that within themselves that has a sense of power and agency and can separate their negative emotions or their negative state or their negative feelings or thoughts from themselves and they can you can kind of that gives you a sense of being able to have some control over it or um would be less overwhelmed by it. So for him saying, okay, you know, maybe, maybe you could put your worries aside for a few minutes. I mean, this gives you a chance to say, I can come back to them. They're going to be there, but 
I can, I'm bigger than they are. And, and I think especially working with kids, it's true with kids, but it's, I think it's true with adults too, when you're facing any kind of, of challenge, physical or mental or emotional, um, being able to separate yourself from it. So there are a couple of different pieces, and I learned this in a training by some guy at a, a, a chaplain's conference a while back who talked about um, the need for autonomy, the need for agent, or identity, identity, agency, and eschatology. He said these are the three things that children facing life-threatening diseases need have a need for. And I think I find it to be true with adults, too, that in terms of identity, the question of, well, who am I now that I have this? You know, if, if it's a diagnosis of some sort, whether it's a permanent one or a temporary one, but what does that say about who I am and how can I be more than just this? Because we get reduced to our diagnoses. So there's the identity piece, the autonomy piece, or the agency piece of saying, you know, I have some say in what's going on, and this is especially hard for kids in our culture, but many times hard for anybody in the medical system or the healthcare system or the mental health system, getting a sense of we, we are a culture where we turn ourselves over to experts and say, here, fix me. Or if we don't, if we don't do that, the people in the culture expect that of us. So if we come and we say, hey, I want to be an active participant in my treatment and I have these ideas and want to consult and I want your opinion, we might find care providers who are saying, no, 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 just take the pills I tell you to on the schedule. And that can be a challenge. So having a sense of, of, of uh, agency and control. And then finally, eschatology in terms of saying, what's the ultimate meaning of my life going to be? Where's, how is this all going to end up? What is the purpose? Um, and struggling to gain that, whether it's towards the end of our lives or just kind of integrating our sense of what's going on with us in terms of whether a, you know, a parent with a child with special needs or the child themselves with special needs or having any, you know, a, a sibling of a child with special needs. Um, so identity, agency or autonomy, and eschatology. These are, I think these are all also addressed by things like the worry box, uh, worry stones, meditation practices, things like that. Um, I'm not exactly familiar with the word eschatology, so that's why I uh, didn't do very well in school when it came to that kind of stuff. Um, could you give me a, give us a quick definition of what eschatology is? Or Sure, I'm sorry. Um, eschatology, and I'm going to get the derivation probably wrong here. It's uh, Greek, I believe, um, and, it's a, it's, and basically it means last thing. Oh, okay. Um, and usually it's used to refer to like an apocalyptic ending of the world or, and, you know, the, the, the culmination of creation being whatever, you know, the, the, the city of God or the, the um, commonwealth of heaven on earth. Um, but eschatology generally references kind of the end of all things. And in a, in a broader sense, in a, in a less explicitly death-focused sense, but more of a um, what is my life about? What right. is this all moving towards? Um, it, it draws us into thinking about those kinds of things, the purpose and meaning of our lives. Okay. That's a cool idea. And it's, you know, it's interesting, you know, that uh, kids would be centered on that kind of thing, and yet they are, you know, and people tend to forget, well, kids, you know, they, they don't even think about the future, but actually they really do. Oh, sure. That's all there. So that's, that's excellent, uh, excellent ideas, you know, for them to focus on, you know, ways of helping to reduce their stress in their life, even though they may not be able to articulate it. Yeah, I mean, giving giving kids a sense of, you know, you are more than just this. You are bigger than this. I mean, kids feel so small. We, we all do, I think. You yeah. know, that's part of, part of what our challenges are in coping is that sense of smallness and part of 
what religion and spirituality can be helpful with too. Um, and so just being able to confess our smallness because it's real and also claim our bigness. Yeah, it's great. Well, sometimes uh, certain branches of religions have conflicting views about science and medicine that could offer help for various disorders or impairments that can affect our children. And for many people, the idea of disagreement with a religious belief that they've grown up with could be a major source of uh, trauma or conflict. Uh, so what, what could parents who uh, might find themselves in this kind of situation, whereas the religion may say one thing and science may some, say something else, what could they do to maybe uh, help try to resolve those conflicts? Well, I think um, one of the things that, that I used to talk with folks a lot about at Fountain Street there was, was learning to live at comfort with or in, at peace with the ambiguities. Mm. And that is one of the challenges. I mean, I can't remember who it is, who it is that said that one of the signs of a, of a mature mind is the capacity to hold opposing, mutually opposing thoughts at the same time. So I, I would say the first thing is to strive as opposed to... Um, as opposed to putting the, the conflict to complete rest, instead of that, to, to first say, okay, it may be possible that I'm just going to have to live in this tension between these traditions. So that's one, one piece. Um, another, as I said before, when we were talking about you know, religious teachings that can help people to find peace as opposed to despair, within each tradition, there will be voices that will be more um, embracing of modern medical techniques and practices, and there will be voices that will be more skeptical. And so recognizing, too, that when you're in this tradition, though it may seem that you know, everybody in this Orthodox tradition only, only views you know, medicine with skepticism, or everybody in this really progressive tradition, for that matter, only views prayer and faith with skepticism, saying, you know, there will be people trusting that there will be people in your tradition somewhere that will have more of a mid middle ground or more of the other extreme, and looking for those voices, inviting those, whether it's in the congregation you're a part of, it may be your, it may be your faith, you know, a leader in your faith community, because oftentimes um, my experience has been that there is a gap between the um, public stance of faith leaders and perhaps some of their private convictions, um, you may or may not be able to get them to share with you if they have some, if there's more wiggle room in the, in the faith than what is presented pu publicly. So, you know, seeking out guidance and counsel and consultation from your faith traditions leaders is another possibility. And I think also, you know, whatever as a parent or as a, as a person, whatever your practices are, whether it's prayer or meditation um, or contemplation, doing what you can to kind of sit with these tensions and listen inside yourself, listen to the stirrings of your spirit, listen to the rumblings of your mind um, to see how and where you can find your own peace with these um, and trusting. How do you open yourself up to being guided whether it's by your higher self or by your conscience or by, you know, your logical mind, how do you open yourself up to say, all right, help me to make peace with these tensions? Right. You know, it's it seems like there's an awful lot of uh, it must be all this and it cannot be any of that uh, going on in both in just life itself. And the simple fact of the matter is it's a lot of everything. It's not just one one idea. 
Yeah, and you know, as a as a chaplain working in the hospital, a lot of times, you know, folks will. I, I find myself in conversation with folks who are saying, you know, well, um, I know God can do anything, and so we're not going to make any. We're not going to like if somebody's on life support, which is I realize an extreme version of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But folks saying, you know, we're not going to make any choices. We're just going to let God decide. And there's kind of like a piece of like, well, okay, yes, that's a deep sense of faith and trust. And, you know, when you chose to make, to put this artificial machine on this person to keep them alive, you were making a choice and using technology and medicine. Right. And so when you're not getting the outcome that you want, then to say, well, that, that's not, we're not making a choice. Instead, we're going to let God choose. It's like, no, that's, you've already done that. <laughs> you know, you've already, right. you've already started. So it's, it's, um, it's helping people to move into a space of recognizing that it's possible that, that, that God works through medicine. Right. You know, that that is a way of faith, but it's not the totality of it. Helping people move into that space is part of, has been part of my work as a pastor in, in the hospital. But, and, and kind of challenging, but personally also being challenged by folks' faith and being able to say, yeah, you know, I would have done this differently than you did and I would have gotten a different outcome, but here you are and you've relied heavily on prayer and trusted that this person's body could do something that science was saying it wasn't going to do, and lo and behold, look, it did. So that's part of the challenge is that, you know, sometimes those things happen. And we just, the challenge is we can't predict when those things are going to happen. That's, right. that's why it's not scientific. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, it, and it is a lot more of the both ends, as you're saying. It's a lot more of the living in the tension that life is not all black or all white. It's got this big gray expanse that we're learning to be more comfortable with, but it's going to take us probably a couple more centuries. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, it's a combination of uh, being prepared to deal with what you have in hand and the possibilities for this or the possibilities for that are great, but what right now what's confronting me is this and we need to deal with it. Right. Well, it's, um, on a different note, um, you know, a lot of families, of course, do have strong religious beliefs and they want to include a regular attendance in a church or synagogue or other places of worship that they, uh, they have in their lives. But some special needs children uh, attending a worship service can be an extraordinary challenge for them. Um, how, how could parents, you know, some parents might be nervous about approaching their clergy or their ministers to discuss accommodations for their kids so that they can have a good experience in church without feeling isolated. Um, how would you recommend that parents could uh, maybe uh, do that or approach that uh, type of situation? Well, I, I guess I'll start out by saying, as somebody who does not have a child with special needs, and, and I don't have, actually I don't have children, mm-hmm. um, I realize that from what I hear from parents, from parents, period, and then from parents whose kids have some special needs, is that it's exhausting to constantly have to be as much of an advocate for your child as you have to be. So what I'm going to say <laughs> comes with that recognition. Right. And, and that, is, that is, I think, stepping up in terms of going to some sort of, you know, whether it's the lead pastor or the people at the welcome desk or, um, you know, initially you're probably first point of contact when you go on a, on a whatever day it is you're worshiping is going to be your greeters, right? Mm-hmm. So unless you've done your research ahead of time um, and made some connections and said, hey, we're looking, just going to the going to the front desk and saying, you know, here's our situation, you know, this is our child, this is, or this is our circumstance. Here's what helps us. Here's what we know works, and that's I think one of the things that is um, can be 
uh, alleviating some of the tension when you go to, whether it's a volunteer or a staff person at, at a church or a religious community, and say, hey, we have these special needs, how can you help us? Because those folks, and I say this as a, a person who's worked in congregations, you know, there's, a, there's only so much special training that I have around right. these issues. Um, and you know your kid better than I do. And you've, you've lived with this. So having you come up, come to me and say, hey, we've got, you know, we're, hi, we're new to your community. First of all, that's helpful, just an introduction, you know. Mm-hmm. And then saying, here's what, what is really helpful to our family to make us, to make us be able to, to live and be welcomed in, in a faith community like yours. How will this work there? You know, so, so letting me know what your needs are will help me to be able to assess the degree to which our faith community or this particular, you know, um, worship service or class or, you know, social gathering can be more welcoming to you. You're helping us by telling us more about who you are, what you could use, what, what you know about your kids that works and about your family that works. And it also helps us to help others become more comfortable because I imagine, well, because sometimes when congregations, depending on the size of the congregation and the culture in terms of whether they are more or less open and accustomed to having new faces, whether they're a quieter, more staid worshiping community or whether they're more boisterous and vocal, that will affect how, how easily integrated into the system your family is. Right. Um, and so that will... You know, that's something that, the, that your religious leaders or the volunteers and leaders in the community can tell you. Um, oh, well, here's, here's a place, here's a service, or here's a class where you and your family might feel less friction, which doesn't mean you can't go to the others, but it's just here's, a, here's an easier fit for you. And the other piece is just by telling these leaders, you're also telling them that they can help change the culture in wherever you are and preparing them for, yep, this is how... You know, this is what religious uh, community means, is that we're not all exactly the like, alike, and we learn to be together. So, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, that does, that does. I know when we uh, first started going to uh, Fountain Street Church, we went to your early service, the one that you did for the kids. And uh-huh. that, that really helped put Nathan at ease, because he was having a lot of, you know, he does... At that point, he was getting some help, but this was many years ago when he was a lot younger, and he was just getting used to going to places and being involved in that early service where it was, uh, you know, much more laid back. He was able to bring some toys to play with on the floor, and he had a lot more fun. And I think that really helped him uh, get used to the idea of going to church and uh, being around people and understanding that he's, you know, people are going to put up with it and they're going to accept him. I think that was a big help. I was just going to say, and that's one of the, the kind of dual tensions we're going again back to that both and this, is that on one hand, as a community, it, um, communities are both shaped by those people in it and they're shapers of those people in them. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the tensions that we experience as people in those communities is on one hand, we want to say, I want to be able to be who I am to come to this community and not have to change so much, you know, be accepted, to be welcomed. And mm-hmm. that's true. And so, you know, it's a gift to your son to be able to say, okay, I'm going to sit on the floor and play with these toys and nobody's going to bother me or, or raise a stink. You know, that's great. Mm-hmm. And the flip side of that is we get shaped by the community, too. So we walk in the door and say, will you accept me? And the community says yes. And there's also a request for the community, uh, from the community, mm-hmm. in some way, whether verbal or otherwise, to kind of conform a bit. So there's always this dance going back and forth between us and the communities, whether they're religious or other, um, that is both accepting us but also challenging us to 
to be shaped by them. Yeah, and that really helped him too because then he he started picking up on some of the things that people were saying and some of your some of your sermons and things like that, and he began to understand that uh, okay, this is really great. I'm learning some stuff here too. Yeah, you know, he wasn't necessarily able to articulate it, but we could tell just by his behavior and the type of things he was saying later in the week, later in the month, you know, that he was picking up and he was understanding and uh, comprehending a lot of this. That's great. Uh, Along the same lines, of course, with Sunday school, you know, special education, of course, is available in most schools and stuff like that. But of course, uh, Sunday school is going to be entirely different because it's mostly volunteers and not necessarily experienced teachers. But but then the question becomes, you know, well, okay, we have a child who does get special education help in school, and here we are in Sunday school. How do we talk with the volunteers and the parents to make sure that our, they understand our child uh, will require some special accommodation, but you don't, like, have to go out of your way necessarily? Well, I think exactly the same, the same thing that I suggested for, you know, entrance into a worshiping aspect of the community is starting out by, by introducing, you know, hey, we're new here. You know, here are some things we know that work for our, for our kids. And, and especially, I mean, there are some, this is an area where you're more likely, I think, to have some familiarity with, with accommodations, cultural and communal accommodations um, in, in religious schools. Because, because they're more explicitly oftentimes focused on children and because they have this kind of model of, you know, okay, we're an educational setting. And so even even though, as you point out, you know, we're run by volunteers, and so these are people with an interest. Some, some have an interest. Some are just doing it because they're, it's their kid who's there, and they, they feel like they have to, you know. Um, but the person who's running it oftentimes has some sort of an interest in education. So you're talking with somebody who has some, re- for some reason, is like, yes, this is, I'm willing to, I want to make a learning space for these children, right? Mm-hmm. As a parent, Stepping into that, offering some suggestions, saying, here's what works in school, here's what works at home, being willing to stay with them. And I imagine, again, as somebody who's not a parent, I I can only imagine how tiring this can be to do, but being willing to stay with them for the first, for a stretch of time and volunteer in the classroom, or if not in their classroom, in another classroom in, in the setting so that you're nearby and so that you can get a sense for how do things run in this school you know, in this religious educational setting. The challenge we always face in, in a setting like this, and I think that, you know, it gets faced in private schools, it gets faced in, to some degree, in charter schools too, is, yes, of course we want to um, make accommodations, we want to adapt, we want to make this environment as accessible as possible, and with limited resources, there's only so much that can be done without completely dismantling the system. So humility, patience, uh, willingness to be a part of changing the system, recognizing it may not change at the pace you want it to, and realizing that you're going to probably be a teacher for this community, which, again, I can only imagine being exhausting. Yeah. I think that's really uh, good advice, you know, because, um, you know, like you say, it can be exhausting, but uh, it's part of uh, the deal we have as parents, you know, that we we go in there and we have to make sure that our kids are getting um, what works for them. Or they're just not going to want to come back. We want to make it a good experience, right? Well, we get to the uh, get now into that uh, bit of the stuff where it might uh, cause a lot of conflict for people, and uh, we're uh, the uh, the sacred texts and the scriptures that have views of special needs that you know to put it kindly are 
out of date with uh, current thinking or understanding. How can parents of special needs children try to resolve all those old and out of date philosophies that might be in their religious texts with the current thinking of uh, special needs children and where their place in society is and uh, the future for them and their lives in general? I think that there's been a lot of work in recent years um, in in religious communities uh, to kind of do exactly what you're talking about, to challenge the text um, and, and say, okay, how are these projects, how are these, uh, how are these texts products of their time? And, how do they, and this is always a slippery slope for folks, as you said. You know, this, is a, this can be a really challenging thing um, because folks, folks who say slippery slope, who argue about that, are like, oh, no, if we start talking about Scripture as a, as a, as a product of its time, then we're going to start questioning everything it says, which is you know, the fundamentalist challenge of looking at Scripture. With, a, with an eye towards, towards its context. But that's exactly what needs to happen, I believe. And being able to look, I mean, if you, if you do web searches or look online, there are a lot of disability communities that have been, or, or voices within disability communities that have been advocating for looking at Scripture again and challenging traditional understandings of Scriptures and what does healing mean and look like and what does wholeness mean and look like and recognizing that, particularly when you're looking at um, you know, the Jewish and the Christian traditions, that the, the language around when people were impure and being unable to participate in the life of community and had to be restored to pureness in order to, that that was of a particular culture and clan and time, and we're not there now. And recognizing that the conversations around purity are, they're political conversations. You know, it, it, it's a conversation that excludes certain people from participation, and that, when you look at who continues to be excluded from our culture and from our society as being valued members, you're sitting, there you are with, within the tradition, within the um, communities of people living with disabilities. And so I think it's, it's a powerful and an important work that needs to be done and that is being done. And so claiming again, looking at the Jewish and the Christian traditions that you're looking at, you know, is God on the side of the oppressed? And we're looking at liberation theology using that language, but saying, okay, to the degree that people are experiencing oppression, then looking through the lens of liberation theology, saying God is there in the midst of that and struggling towards freedom, struggling towards justice. And so right there in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the challenge, that's where you find the divine. So I don't know if that quite answers your question. Well, yeah, it's 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 a uh, you know it's not something that is easily answered within a, a few minutes either. You know, this is uh, sure. the kind of stuff that uh, can cause hours and hours of debate. But uh, I was just you know it it just seems interesting to me. You know, like you say, when you look at things like the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you know, blessed are the meek and mild. Well, what exactly does that mean? You know, doesn't right. that mean that the the special needs and the People who are uh, challenged, you know, they they have a place too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's really good. Do you have um, do you have off the top of your head uh, um, some uh, websites or things like that where you mentioned that there are these debates are taking place that maybe some people who are listening could uh, access for uh, to research that themselves. You know, I don't. Oh, okay. Um, and I was thinking as I was saying that, I should look that up. Um, <laughs> but well, I just know that I know that when I was in seminary and subsequent to that, I have heard snippets of conversations that are, you know, they're like a, a hidden doorway. I mean, this is part of, 
privilege, right? So as somebody who's currently temporarily able-bodied, I don't, I'm not always in conversations around issues of ability. Sure. Um, and I, I would hear snippets of conversations or read articles, and it was like this was a secret passage that would take me to this entirely different world. And so I know that those conversations are happening. They're live, um, and they're what they're online. They're I would I guess I would start with um, you know connecting with. Uh, NAMI, uh, National Alliance for Mental Illness, which I know is a whole different world, but I imagine that they might have a line. If you just, you know, do a Google search on um, disability theology or, or theologies of wholeness and healing, you're going to find, you know, find stuff in there. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about this. Uh, it's a lot of uh, interesting information. I know I hear a lot of parents uh you know, expressing these concerns at various different times. You know, I just don't know what uh, my church is going to do, or I just don't know uh, what to do about the way my child behaves, uh, right? And things like that. And so, I, I think uh, having some uh, some dialogue with a minister um, such as yourself is is a tremendous benefit that uh, people can understand that there are you know there are definitely avenues that you can take. Yeah, and I think you know the. I just, I just think it's got to be the folks, the families that I. It's exhausting to be a parent. Period. I mean, I tell people over and over again. I think that's the hardest job in the world. And then when you throw into it any kind of additional needs, it just, it just makes it even harder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I, the, the families that I've spoken with in religious communities, you know, they come to church and they want to have a place where they can just kind of trust and where they can be human. You know, I mean, that's part of what church is about, religious community is about. What does this being human mean? What is it, how do we do it? Right. And how do we do it in, you know, we're all making big messes of it, all of us, um, and we're trying our best. And I think when families come uh, with all of their beauty and all of their ugliness, they're like, I just want to be, I don't want to have to hide and pretend. And, um, and I want somebody to just accept us and uh, and help us to be even better, and that, you know, that's part of what churches, what religious communities are there for. Um, and those religious communities are flawed and imperfect, and and I think that's where a lot of the disappointment comes in. Is we have we come to these communities, which hold up such high ideals, and then fall so incredibly short of them, and then we get angry and disappointed, and we move on. And the truth is, every human institution is going to fall short of its ideals, and the way that they get the way that they get held accountable is by people sticking with them. And so that's part of the gift and the challenge of, of, of sticking with these kinds of communities is being able to say, hey, look, you said you welcome people no matter what their X, Y, or Z, you know, what their gender, what their ability level, uh, income, race, sexual orientation, et cetera. So, okay, here we are with our situation, and you're, here's a barrier that your community is putting up that's making it impossible for us to be here or difficult. We'll, can we learn together? Can we make this work? And that's hard, and that's the work of community. I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Matthew Cockrum, for offering some extraordinary and valuable insight. Now, I have to mention that a couple of days after we recorded this interview, we both realized that there were still some topics and issues that we wanted to discuss but somehow missed. So we've agreed to continue this conversation in another episode later this year. I can't really narrow down a date yet, as Matthew's on his way to a new job, serving as Transitional Minister at University Unitarian Church in Seattle, Washington. 
He begins with them at the end of the summer, and we want to give him some time to get moved in and settled into his new mission. We'll post an update about when we're going to be able to record the sequel to this podcast on the Special Parents Confidential website as soon as we can. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.